All right, good morning. Let me invite you to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 34 is where we're going to be this morning. You're probably looking at your watch if you're a regular here and saying, man, you're up way too early in the service. What's going on today? You're changing things. Does that mean you're going to preach that much longer? No, that's not the plan. The design is to get you out a little bit earlier because at the end of our service, we're going to invite you to go downstairs at the Connection Fair and find a place to connect in the life of our church. So move things up just a little bit, throwing you a little bit of curveball this morning, but you'll be okay. So 2 Chronicles 35, uh, 34, 35, it might be the nice, white, clean pages of your Bible. Uh, maybe you don't frequent uh, this section of Scripture often, uh, but our hope is, as a part of the story that we've been reading through together and studying through, that you're exploring maybe some sections of Scripture that you've never read before. And maybe this is one of them, Second Chronicles 34. Uh, I'm going to begin with a little bit of an illustration to kind of set up where we're going to be and what we're going to wrestle with this morning. It's something I went back and reviewed a little bit this week. I'd heard about this, but had not studied it in a while. But it's something that took place in 1904 in the country of Wales. Uh, during the spring of 1904, a, a young man from the country of Wales named Evan Roberts was repeatedly awakened in the middle of the night for several weeks on end. When he was awakened, he sensed a longing to pray and a sense of urgency to pray for his own life, his own spiritual condition, and even much more the condition of his nation. What resulted out of that was that God took Evan Roberts and used him to be a vital part and what we now look back upon is one of the greatest movements of God in really the history of the world, known as the Welch Revival of 1904-1905. I encourage you to Google that and investigate all that God did during that time. Uh, one pastor said that it was a mighty, unseen breath of the Spirit that did more in a month's time than centuries had accomplished in that nation before. Uh, the London Times, the newspaper, it would be like the New York Times in our day. The London Times reported it was a great effect on the nation. There were healing the spiritual carelessness of God's people. There was a healing of the growing bitterness and division in their nation. The London Times continued and said the entire population of the nation had been suddenly stirred by a common interest. Christ had become the absorbing focus of their lives. People were gathered in crowded services for six to eight hours at a time. Could you imagine? That means we start about 11, we'll be dead oh, about 8 or 9 o'clock tonight. There was revival that was breaking out. The crowds had gathered. Political meetings and even football matches were postponed. Quarrels between trade union workers and non-unionists had been made up. And even feuds between churches and church leaders were made up and reconciled. Coal miners, commerce was affected. Coal miners crowded into prayer meetings that lasted until 3 a.m. And then they bathed and went on to work early the next morning. Employers noticed a great improvement in the work produced by their employees. A judge named Sir Merchant realized that his workload was much, much less because there were so many less court cases. Even the miners' horses, this was funny, even the miners' horses were puzzled at their master's new language because they were not using curse words and they didn't know how to respond. It was a sweeping revival in the country of Wales. 
The Welsh revival of 1904 and 1905 was a divine intervention that drastically, listen to this, changed life in churches, in homes, in mines, in factories, in schools, even the places of leisure and entertainment. Evan Roberts, the pastor who was used, that God used to stir this revival, said this, This movement is not of me, it is of God. I would dare not direct it. It is the Spirit alone who is leading us. He said everything sprang into new life. Everything was different. God was breathing life afresh into His people. The Welsh revival was not a wave of emotion, but a mighty outpouring of godly fervor, bringing, and here's the quote, an entire nation to its knees at the foot and adoration of the cross and praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a sweeping movement of God in 1904 and 1905. Now the word revival as we use it, and as it's often used in Scripture, literally means to give life to, to breathe fresh life into. It means to flourish, to to be vigorous in growth, to be healthy. It means this fresh life giving, and it If you hear that, even like when I was reading it again last night, there was something in me that stirred as a follower of Christ that, and it's got to be in you a little bit, Lord, I want to experience something like that. It's a reality that God often gives seasons of refreshing time of His activity corporately to churches and often to individuals. The Bible talks throughout of times of refreshing and of of this reviving movement of God in the lives of people. Often movements like this, this is encouraging and challenging, start with one person. And God gets a hold of a saint or a brother or sister in Christ and they begin pleading with God and the Word of God begins convicting deeply and God does something through that person's influence in life, just like Evan Roberts. You say, Pastor Mike, why are you sharing all that this morning? Well, what we're getting ready to read, I wanted to set that up for you, is a story of a time of revival in the nation of Judah. If you read this this past week, you know that the nation of Judah, remember the people of God, is no longer one nation. They experienced a civil war and they divided into two nations, northern nation Israel, southern nation Judah. Israel has now been wiped off the face of the map by the Assyrians. Judah still remains, but Judah's got serious problems. The spiritual health of the people of Judah is maybe at an all-time low. They've been led for now 55 years by, just to be honest, a king that's a mess, a wicked king. His name is Manasseh. The Bible says that he led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray. Another translation says he literally led them into deception. Their leadership had led them into lies and pursuing vain things. The nation of Judah is really facing a tough, tough situation. His grandson, Manasseh's grandson now, uh, Manasseh's son comes on the scene. He reigns for a few years. He's just as wicked. And then God raises up Manasseh's grandson. A new king now steps on the scene. And his name is maybe a name you've heard before. His name is Josiah. And God raises up this new king there in the midst of Judah. And that's where we're going to pick up in 2 Chronicles 34, 1 and 2. That's the situation. A new king now steps on the scene. 
And it's really exciting to read because God is getting ready to do something really tremendous in the life of this king and in this nation that we just read about this morning. 2 Chronicles 34, 1 and 2. Here's what the Bible says. You can follow along on the screen. There are a copy of God's Word in front of you if you'd like to follow along. The Bible says this, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Really? An eight-year-old is leading the nation. Well, he had some advisors next to him, but the king that preceded him died early. He was the next in line. So God puts this king in place at eight years old, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. So by the time the end of his reign rolled around, he was only 39 years old. He did what was pleasing, now this is important, in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn away from doing what is right. Now stop right there. There's a ton of stuff in that verse. Because we know Josiah's granddad was a mess. We know Josiah's dad was a mess. Somewhere, somehow, there was an incredible godly influence in the life of this young man, Josiah. You get it back in First or Second Kings. I'm not going to take the time to go back. But it mentions his godly mother, and her name was Jedediah. So if you're out there, and you're a mom, and you're investing in the lives of your kids, and you're not sure if changing that 18th diaper and reading that Bible verse and trying to pour into the life of your kids matters, here is a nation that's going to be transformed. And it seems one of the most significant influences on this king was his mama. Because as often is the case, the dad was a mess. And that's true sometimes. Thank God for godly moms and godly wives. Amen? Uh, guys, that was a good opportunity for you. Thank God for godly moms and godly wives, right? There we go. And that's what you see going on here in the life of Josiah. The Bible goes on. For in the eighth year of his reign, now he's a ripe old age of 16. He's a teenager, and you say a teenager is now leading the nation. And a teenager is leading the nation well. It reminds me, as I look out, I see even some of our teenagers and the incredible students God's gifted us here. Sometimes in the church we think, okay, those teenagers, they're the church of the future. No, they're not. They're the church of now. God uses, and many of the revivals in the history of the world were sparked when young people were touched by the hand of God and the fire of their youth was channeled in the right direction, and God used the life of a teenager. This dude is 16 years old. Listen to what it says. When he was still a youth, verse 3, he began to seek the God of his father David. Now stop right there. So what does that mean? I mean, it said he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He, he was following what was right. Well, here's what happened evidently in the life of Josiah. Now watch this, parents. What happened in the life of Josiah is what we pray for every one of our kids. Now watch. Josiah had been invested in. Josiah had been poured into, evidently, by his mom. Evidently, there were some prophets speaking into his life. These are the days of Isaiah and some prophets like that. And watch this. What, I, what Josiah had been taught, what had been poured into his life, what he had heard, what he had seen modeled by the godly influences around him. Watch this. When he turned 16, it became his own. And it wasn't merely the faith of another. It became his own faith. And the Bible says he began to seek the Lord himself. That is the prayer for all of our kids. Hey, parents, don't just pray that God would give you good little boys and girls. The end is not morality. 
the end are Christ followers. That's what we desire. And that's what happened to Josiah. He had been taught well. He was living a good life. But then he realized, wait a minute, I need to give my life to the Messiah and to God. He becomes a follower of the one true God. Pray that for our children, not just good little boys and girls. And that's what happens to Josiah. And in the 12th year, he's 20 now, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and the ashram, the carved images and the molten images. What in the world does that mean? Well, God's doing something in the life of this young man. In the four years that he's been pursuing now, God in this personal, dynamic, growing relationship with God, Josiah, now the king, begins to look over his nation, begins to look over the people of God, and he sees a mess. He sees the influence of the leaders that came before him, and he sees the drift that was going on in the people of God. And let me just say this here. Be very careful to politicize this and make this more about the United States of America. This is about the people of God. Be careful to throw this off on just a political situation. This is speaking to us as the people of God. The people of God had drifted. The people of God had begun to chase vain, empty things, and their lives were empty. And Josiah looks over his people and says, we've got to do something. So he went throughout the land. He went on a tour of purging, if you will. It says he got rid of the ashram and the carved images and chopped down the incense altars. We read about that last week with King Hezekiah a little bit. Here's what he did. All those vain, empty things they were chasing. He purged the land. He just knocked the feet right out from under them. He took away their props. So that there would be space created for them to pursue what was true. And the one that was real. And then Josiah goes throughout the land and he purges the land. And then verse 8 says, now in the 18th year of his reign, he purged the land. The end of verse 8 says, and then he returned. Or actually, the end of verse 7 says, then he returned to Jerusalem. So he goes on this tour throughout Judah and Israel, and then he returns to Jerusalem. And now he has something else on his mind. He comes to Jerusalem, and he looks at the temple. You know, that temple that was built by Solomon, that magnificent temple that was a structure, but it's a structure intended to be a, rep, a, a, a visual symbol, if you will, of the glory of God. Where people were able to go and be instructed of God's truth and hear God's revelation. And that's the, kind of the centerpiece of the worship of the nation. And he looks at the temple, and it was just a mess. It was in disarray, so he gets this team together and he says, okay, here's what you're going to do. We're going we're gonna to build back the temple. We're, we're, we're going to take the temple that's in disrepair and we're going to repair the temple. You say, Pastor Mike, what does that have to do with us this morning and what does that have to do with anything? Well, something very interesting happens when he's in the temple. So he dispatches this team of prophets and priests and they go and they're working really hard and they're cleaning, everything's a mess and everything's just been left and disarray, it's been neglected and it's just awful and they begin cleaning and they begin building and they discover something in the temple of God. Now stay with me here, this is huge. Verse 14 says, they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord. Hilkiah, the priest, was there. He was part of this team. And he finds something. Verse 14 says, he found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Now that seems maybe insignificant, but what that implies was that the written word of God in this day, which, again, most likely all they had was Genesis through Deuteronomy, the law of Moses, the written word of God that had been entrusted to God's people for years and years and years and years had been lost. 
It had been hidden in the temple. It had been, this is such a vivid picture. The living word of God had been buried under the rubble of neglect. And you ask yourself, how could the people of God go in such a direction they were going in? Is because they had not been hearing the living word of God, the spoken word of God, the revealed word of God. And this priest comes in there and they're turning over these stones, turning over these rocks. And he pulls out maybe these scrolls. We don't know exactly what it looked like. And he pulls it out, he begins reading, he goes, man, this is, this, is, this is good stuff here. And he takes this and he begins to read it and he realizes, wait a minute, he remembers maybe something Isaiah had said and maybe something Jeremiah was saying and he realizes this is what they were speaking of, this is what Moses had said, this is what God had said through Moses. And he takes this word of God incredible symbol that had been lost of all places in the temple of God and again it's reading it and he takes it to the king verse 18 moreover Shaphan the scribe told the king saying Hilkiah the priest gave me this book and Shaphan began to read it in the presence of the king now we don't know for sure but this is possible the first time Josiah despite all that God had done in his life, had maybe ever heard the Word of God read in his hearing. We don't know for sure. So I want you to to feel the scene here for a minute, okay? So I don't know if this happens in the, the throne room of Josiah or what, but picture him kind of there on his throne so to speak or hanging out whatever kings do I don't know and and the scribe comes in and says all right Josiah I've got something we found it in the temple I think you need to hear this Josiah said okay man go ahead and he maybe sits down and pulls out the scroll and he begins to read you say no Pastor Mike what did he read well we don't know for sure but scholars believe based on the response and some things that come out most likely he read from the book of Deuteronomy And most likely he read from what we would call Deuteronomy chapter 28 because of the response of the king upon hearing the word of God that had previously been hidden transforms the nation and transforms the people of God. The immediate application for you and for me in our day right now at this moment is what place does the word of God have in your life? What place does the Word of God have in your daily life? So the scribe pulls out the scrolls and he begins to read. And we presume that he read from Deuteronomy 28 and he read something like this. Now don't look this up. This is not going to be on the screen. I'm going to read to you most likely what the king is going to hear. All right, so just kind of. Just kind of listen, picture the scene, the scribes are reading this. You know what's going on in the nation. You know what's been going on in the nation for the past 60 years. They've been rebelling against God. And here's what the scribe begins to read. Verse 1 of Deuteronomy 28 is where I'm reading from. It says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all His commands that I'm giving, today, giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the world. You will experience, verse 2, all the blessings if you obey the Lord your God. Your towns will be blessed. Your fields will be blessed. Your children and your crops will be blessed, verse 6. Wherever you go and whatever you do, you will be blessed, verse 7. The Lord will conquer your enemies when they attack you, verse 8. The Lord will guarantee a blessing on everything you do. He'll fill your storehouses with grain. Then you can imagine Josiah is hearing this and going, man, the blessings of the Lord, this is incredible. Verse 10. 
Then all the nations of the world will see that you are a people claimed by the Lord and you will stand, and will stand in awe of you. The Lord will give you prosperity in the land he swore to give you. Verse 14, you must not turn away. You must not drift from the commands, any of the commands that I'm giving you today, or nor follow after other gods, cheap imitations and worship them. And then the scribe continues to read and the thermostat in the room changes completely. The atmosphere in the room continue, completely changes. He picks up in verse 14 and he reads, But if you refuse to listen to the Lord your God, and do not obey all the commands and the decrees I'm giving you today. All these curses will come upon you and overwhelm you. Your towns will be cursed and your fields will be cursed. Your children and your crops will be cursed. Wherever you go and whatever you do will be cursed. The Lord himself will send on you confusion and curses and frustrations and everything you do. Until at last you're completely destroyed from doing this evil and abandoning me. Verse 21, the Lord will afflict you with diseases and fever and inflammation and scorching heat and drought. He goes on, the Lord will cause you to be defeated by your enemies. Chapter 28, verse 47, if you do not serve the Lord your God with joy and enthusiasm for the abundant benefits He's given you, then you will serve your enemies. And Josiah, you, you, I wanted you to hear that. I'm going to read a little bit more because I want you to feel... In that moment, what the leader of God's people feels because he realizes for the past 60 years and really much more, his people are a long way from that. And he's, he's feeling this deep conviction and this deep burden when the word of God was opened and the spirit of God is piercing his heart. He goes on, verse 64, For the Lord will scatter you among all the nations from one end of the earth to another. I have set before you, this is 3015, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. And then I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep in His commandments, and the Lord your God may bless you in the land you are entering to possess it. So Josiah the king sits there and he hears this and he realizes in a moment that what he's hearing is from the mouth of God. And with that, if these words are true, the people of God are under the curse of God. Because they're a long way from this. He realizes they have not honored his word. They have not loved him. They have not been seeking him. They sure haven't served him. They have served every false god coming. Their hearts have drifted. And now he's reading. He knows what their future is. He realizes we as a people are in trouble. And it is a heavy burden on Josiah. So how do you know? Verse 34, 19. 2 Chronicles 34, 19 says this. When the king heard these words of the law... He tore his clothes. Second Chronicles 34, 27 said he tore his clothes and wept bitterly. What does that mean? His shirt was too tight? No. That's a sign of grief and mourning and brokenness as if to say we are coming apart. Lord, judgment is coming and we deserve it. <laughs> hey, Pastor Mike, that's pretty heavy. I'm really glad I came here this morning to be so encouraged by that this morning. Hang on. So Josiah gathers all the people together and they gather around this. And here's what happens, verse 29 and 30. Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king 
And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, they all gathered around. And he, the king, read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, the, the word of God. The king stands in the middle of the people, gathers them around, and says, you've got to hear this. And he reads maybe some of the stuff that I just read you in their hearing. And then there's this deep national brokenness and conviction. The people of God realize we are far, far. And watch this. Left to ourselves, we have drifted far, far from God. Now I'm going to give you two life applications from this passage this morning. I'm going to give you the first one right now. I'm going to give you the second one in just a minute. What do we take from this? Here's life, life principle number one. God's word cuts deeply and exposes clearly the true condition of our heart. Did you know that? You say, Pastor Mike, I'll be honest. Sometimes I don't like that. I'll be honest. Sometimes I don't like it. Sometimes we know that God's Word, he, he loves us so much that the Spirit of God will take His Word and the work that is done in our life is not that we're just, oh, we're feeling great about everything. Sometimes the Spirit of God gives us deep awareness of the direction we're headed or the choices we've been making or the attitudes we've been keeping or whatever the case is. And we say, Lord, God, Father, forgive me. Hebrews 4 says it this way, For the Word of God is living and active. It is alive. And it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Listen, Jeremiah 17 says, I don't even know my own heart. The heart is more deceptive than anything else. Who can know it? You know what knows your heart and knows your motives and knows what you're up to? The Spirit of God using the Word of God. And you and I, watch this, to continue to prosper, we need the Word of God to take like a sharp two-edged sword and pierce down into our motives. And we realize, you know what, Lord? I've been pursuing self. I've been pursuing the wrong motives. Even this job I'm seeking, Lord, has been from nothing for greed. My attitude toward my wife has been pathetic. I've been only thinking about myself, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. God loves us that much. The revival that takes place and took place in the nation of or Judah that we're going to finish reading about here in just a second, began, watch, when the Word of God was uncovered and the Spirit of God took truth and pierced their hearts so they would know the, their condition of their heart. That's hard sometimes, isn't it? That's hard for me. So there was this deep confession or this deep conviction, this deep brokenness of the people of God. And you say, well, I hope we don't end there. That's not the end of the message, is it? Nope, not at all. So in this atmosphere and in this attitude of deep contrition and deep brokenness, maybe like they had never experienced before, guess what happens? They kept on reading. <laughs> they kept on reading. And I don't know if it was Josiah, the Bible doesn't really tell us exactly. I don't know if it was Hilkiah the scribe or the priest. They realized that they were, if you will, under the curse of God because of their choices and their decisions. But then they kept on reading and they came to somewhere maybe like Exodus 15 and 16 or Exodus 14 and 15. Or they came to Numbers chapter 9 and you say, I'm not sure exactly what that's about. They realized that the people of God were commanded by God on a yearly basis to practice this, this celebration together. 
that they were to have this event and they called it the Passover celebration. And Josiah, maybe he's got his Bible like this, and he's reading the scrolls, and he says, okay, I see that, I know what that, and he flipped back and he goes, where did that come from, this Passover that we're supposed to have every year? And he flips back and he reads that there was a time in the nation of the people of God when they were in Egypt, and everyone in the land was under the curse of the death angel. Hang with me here. And he read how God said, okay, everyone is going to be under the curse of this death angel who's going to go through the land of Egypt, except... He said to the people of Israel at that time, and you know the story, take a what? Lamb. You take that lamb and you take it outside your house and you're going to slay that lamb and you're going to take its blood and you're going to paint it up over the doorpost. And when that death angel goes through the land, wherever he sees the blood, the people do not experience what? Deserved judgment. The, the people experience what? Mercy. The mercy. And Josiah's reading this, and he says, wait a minute. The same God, the same Bible that tells me about the deserved judgment of God also tells me about the mercy of God? And he begins to read this with great joy and realizes, here's your second life application principle that I want to give you. It's in, uh, go, go ahead and put the second life principle is this. The same Word of God that reveals our brokenness also points us to the faultless Lamb of God. And here's what happened in the nation of Judah. Chapter 35 begins this way. It says, Then Josiah announced the Passover of the Lord. He said, Okay, everybody, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a celebration. It's called the Passover. And every family took this lamb, and they would slay this lamb as a picture. And Josiah, verse 35, verse 1 says, They celebrated in Jerusalem, so the Passover lamb was slaughtered on the 14th day of the first month. And everyone began saying, Why are we doing this? What does this mean? What's this lamb all about? And the scribes and those who understood were then able to stand up and say, The same God... The same word that calls judgment because we deserve it also provides a lamb so that that judgment will fall upon another and not upon us. And the people who had experienced deep brokenness over their sin, and rightfully so, now, according to the Bible, have a celebration in Judah like they had never had before. How do you know that? Verse 2 says... Or verse 18, I'm sorry, 35, 18 says, Never since the time of the prophet Samuel had there ever been such a Passover. Do you love that? Why? goes on, verse 18, it says, None of the kings of Israel had ever kept a Passover as Josiah, involving all the priests and all the Levites and all the people of Jerusalem and all the people of Judah and Israel. It said there had never been a Passover like this Passover. Why? Here's the reason, ready? Because there had never been a brokenness over their sin like they were broken over their sin. And the same, watch this, this is the application to you and me. What place do we give this book in our lives? Because the same word of the living God that pierces and cuts and wounds and shows us we're headed in the wrong direction and shows us the foolishness of our decisions and keeps us from making stupid mistakes and shows us that we're undone and shows us, hey, that we are messed up. 
is the same book that then points you to the perfect substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we place all of our hope. And as a part of that Passover, the people were hearing, you mean we're not under the curse? Not as long as you place faith in the Lamb of God. And they saw God's grace and mercy that day like they had never seen it before. You and me, listen, we cling to the Son of God as our only hope in direct proportion to how we see our own brokenness. When we realize how desperate we are, And we come into this place and we sing songs like mercy. If we wake up in the morning and we realize my attitude has been so poor. I've treated my wife so bad. I'm talking about me. And I lose my temper. I lost my temper this morning. But then my eyes don't fix on how wicked I am and how depraved I am. The Bible says turn your eyes away from yourself and turn your eyes to the faultless one, King Jesus. That's the message of the gospel. And that message becomes clear in our lives daily moment by moment when we open His Word and His Word pierces and His Word heals because it points us to the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Right? You want to hear that New Testament language? Very quickly, and then we're going to make some application to our life. First John chapter 2 says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you, the Word of God, So that you may not sin, so that you'll turn from sin and wickedness because it leads to your destruction. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, sinless, perfect one. The Christian life is not you trying harder doing better if I could only give more effort if I just wallowed in my sin enough the Christian life is the spirit of God working in you deeply through his word and you turn your gaze constantly to the sinless flawless one Jesus Christ the righteous that is an abiding relationship with Christ and that flows as we give place to the living word of God in our lives you see that That's a daily revival. That's a daily renewal of, Lord, yes, I see who I am, but, Lord, I embrace who you are as my life and my joy and my source of strength and my source of hope and my all. And that comes as we give place and the Spirit of God takes his word and works deeply in our lives now. I'm going to ask Suzanne to come on up and just begin to play a little bit. And we're going to end our service really very different than normal for you because we we want to help you now respond like all of us respond to God's word so here's the question I have for all of you it's just one question this morning and I, and I want you to wrestle with this before the Lord coming right out of this text we just read and here it is in your life what place are you currently giving God's word I don't, I don't want you to hear that as a yoke. Oh, I've got to try harder. No, that's not what I'm saying. 
I'm saying the life-giving richness of God's Word. What have you carved out that it, it has place in your life? Hey, it might be buried, buried under the rubble of religion like in Josiah's day. Hey, you don't need more religion. Neither do I. You don't even need more religious activity. Neither do I. But you desperately need daily reviving by the Spirit of God through His Word. So do I. That involves our personal our personal devotion to His Word. Feasting. It's like a feast. The Spirit of God opens our eyes. The Spirit of God is working in our lives through His Word. It involves our personal devotion to His Word. But listen, just like we read in Josiah's day, it also involves the community, us, gathering together around His Word. Gathering in settings where you're hearing His Word taught and gathering in cities, gathering in cities where you're speaking and telling what God's doing in your life and you're talking through the Word of God together. And we, we as a church have created a couple platforms to help with this, simply to, simply to enable this to happen. It's not a trying to lead you into a program. That's not the point. But we want to create places for you to hear the Word of God and create places to facilitate discussion around God's Word. We call them study groups and life groups. And our hope and our prayer this morning is if you're not connected in either of those, that you're able to connect in both in the life of our church for you to flourish and grow and be revived and renewed in this journey of following Christ. So here's what we're going to do over the next couple minutes. You're going to watch a couple videos here that just remind some of you and some of you, it's an introduction for the very first time. What are study groups and life groups all about? Are these some things that I need to jump into to help me grow and flourish and thrive? And I'll give you a couple more instructions in just a minute. So take a couple seconds, turn your attention to the screen, and let's hear about study groups and life groups. Study groups facilitate an opportunity to learn truth through teaching and Bible study. Biblical truths and observations will be presented by a teacher who may proclaim truth via lecture, video, or group discussion. Teachers are carefully selected and held to high standards as one who is responsible to articulate the revelation of God. Study groups are organized into semesters. Most will gather once per week for approximately one hour. Many will gather on one of our campuses, but some may gather off campus in homes. The exact gathering times and locations are clearly listed in each semester's study group catalog. Join a study group today to learn truth in community with others. create us to live the Christian life in isolation. We're called to fellowship with one another and to talk about God and the life He has called us to live. Life groups provide for deeper fellowship and foster spiritual growth through shared, truth-centered conversations. Life groups are led by a guide. The guide is an equal participant who oversees the group 
and guides group members through four basic questions. Life groups are informal and small. Group members pray together, care for each other's needs, and provide accountability to one another. Life groups meet weekly on campus and off campus at various times. Life groups are designed to help believers choose vulnerability, get real, and live in dynamic communities with one another. Join a life group as we live truth together. video that's real life there man kids crawled all over the floor that's a life group you say what's your uh, what's our next step in this well uh, when you came in you should have received the study group life group guide this little catalog and i want to encourage you to pull that out i'm going to give you some time to just look through this prayerfully in a few minutes but listed in this are all our new season of study groups that are coming up and also listed in the middle of this are all our life groups that are currently going on where where they meet and what we're going to give you time in just a few minutes is to prayerfully consider where, where am I going to jump in and where am I going to connect in the life of this body. Also, uh, before we do that, I'm going to turn your attention to the screen one more time because uh, talk about adults and our growth and how we're wanting to connect, but also if you're a parent here, you're equally concerned about the next generation. How do we give place in the lives of our children, our students, our infants, and preschool, and children? How do we give place to the Word of God in their lives? What's a plan to disciple the next generation? What does that look like? And it ties in to the discussion we're having today about life groups and study groups. But I want you to hear something real exciting on the video you're going to watch. So turn your attention to the screen one more time. Go ahead and roll that next one. Parenting, it's a weighty and awesome responsibility that's been given to us by God. If you are a parent, a grandparent, a caregiver in the life of a child, newborn, all the way through high school, we have a limited amount of time to be able to help invest in them and help lead them to love and follow Jesus. And that doesn't happen accidentally. It doesn't happen randomly. It takes strategy. It takes purpose. It takes intentionality. And most of us, we want that for our child, but we don't really have a plan to get there. And so as a church, we feel the responsibility as leaders in the next-gen ministry to be able to come alongside of you and partner with you in that process. And that begins, one, with your personal pursuit of Jesus. That's why study groups and life groups are so important. It gives you the resources and tools to pursue Him. And out of the overflow of that, love your family well. But the second way is to come alongside of your kids, your spouse, the people you serve alongside of, and develop a plan to lead and love your family, to help them to see Christ in you, to live for Him as well. And so that's what we're going to be talking about at Parent Connect this Wednesday night at 6.30. I want to encourage you to come be a part uh, of that time where you're going to receive information and equipping for how you can develop a plan to lead, love, serve your family with the gospel for this year and years to come. So we hope to see you there. All right. So church, what we're going to do now is really enter into a time of response for you. I'm going to give you a few minutes here, and our team's going to play behind and really just encourage you to sit there and maybe talk and pray with your spouse or your kids and look over this catalog, and nobody's going to pressure you. Nobody's going to be coming behind trying to force you or anything at all. We're creating opportunities for you to jump in and gather around God's Word for your growth, for your health, and then also if you're a parent, what's going on Wednesday night at the Parent Connect is incredibly important for the future of this church. We're going to actually see, you're going to see for the very first time this life discipleship plan, discipleship plan for the next generation where we're going to partner together, partner together investing in the next generation. It's incredibly important 
for us and the future of this church body. So I encourage you to take a look at this. Pray through this together. Uh, Wes is going to come up in just a second and give you more details of what you do next this morning. Also, there's a little card in there. If you are able, and I encourage you to make it happen, to be here Wednesday night at the Parent Connect, probably the most important one we've ever had for you and your family to be at this Wednesday night. You can just check that and drop it in the offering basket in just a minute that's going to pass by, all right? So for the next couple of minutes, we're going to give you space. We're going to give you a little room there to just sit and pray, talk, think, uh, look over some of this and ask the Lord, what's my next step in connecting in the life of this body and giving place to God's Word in my life, all right? So take a couple of minutes and do that. Thank you.